and welcome to our Winter Solstice podcast here on The Voice of the Arts with your host, yours truly, Joe Weber. The days grow shorter and colder, but that doesn't stop the great and powerful industrial machines that help us turn out our twice-monthly podcasts. From my years of owning 1690 AM in Atlanta, Georgia, we have an interview done by our performance artist slash reporter slash traffic reporter, Stefan Flambeau, with the head of the Department of Transportation of the city of Atlanta. This is Stefan Flambeau, and this is a very special edition of Stefan Flambeau. I'm out here I'm by near the waterworks on Moore's Mill Road at the present time, and I've, I, I, I wrote a letter to the DOT. I told them I wasn't satisfied with the response I had gotten, and I've gotten Mr. Elroy Fatback. Is that your name, sir? Elroy D. Fatback. Elroy D. Fatback, yes. and, you're, and you are actually the head of... From I'm what I understand, the, whole, the head of the DOT well, is I'm that the head of the whole thing, if that's what you mean. How long have, are you? I mean, are you the one who gives the orders to the I crew? I consider that an impertinent question, and I refuse to answer it. Well, all I'm asking, I'm a, all I'm asking you, Mr. Fapik, I mean, you're wearing yeah, this but pin. I don't like your attitude. And well, I, my attitude, I, I'm very pleased that you're here with me. I don't know you have a chip on your shoulder coming in here in my office and well, uh, and looking and ordering all my people around. I wasn't and, ordering uh, anyone around, Mr. Fatback. The secretary Fat- said that they have all been touched in places that I will not mention on... Um, no, I, all I did was uh, shake the hand of your... Is this TV? Se- no, this is radio. This is the... Oh, I'm the camera? Steph- oh, it I'm ain't. Stephon, you, say it, you say it ain't. Stephon Flambeau, you've probably heard of me. Why I'm the performance art traffic reporter, and you... Radio, I believe I prefer TV. Well, we don't have a television station, Mr. Fatback, or well, I'd be glad to have you on television. Well... When All you get I on TV, you come back and talk to me, cause then, cause I'm I'm a very attractive person, and I uh, I don't believe people understand that. Well, you, just listening to my well, Mr. Fatback, you're a pleasant-looking person. I wouldn't exactly say you're an attractive-looking person. I of course, I'm not. I voted a, most attractive, most uh, likely to be attractive. Could I talk to my, you at all about all the, the, the streets I've been in. I've been, or the I potholes? Gradu- I graduated from junior high. Or the. So there's three I whole streets caving in. Piedmont Road. In the 40s, I was, uh, all of the motorists out there would like to know when grass. Highway 75, the expressway, mm-hmm. is finally going to be finished. Is that ever going to be finished? Oh, yeah. It'll, that'll be done a couple of days from now. A couple of days from yeah, now? that'll be over. But they've got it'll two miles done. of it blocked off now, and they're constructing a new I bridge. Over t- when I have to. When I, I, I go out there with a shotgun. And uh, I say finish it in a day, and uh, generally they do. Well, that's that's very good news, Mr. Fatback, and I want to I want to thank you for your time. You got any whiskey on you? Well, I uh, n- no, I don't have any whiskey on me. I I, I work I'm working now. I, I don't carry whiskey around, but I am a, mm-hmm. a performance. Well, I do I'm have some too. I'm about half drunk myself, I do, well. but I run low on the flask, and. Uh, so if you got if, uh, any of your crew members here, that I'm the that? only crew member here, Mr. Fatpack. You can see I'm the only person here. Well, who's running the show? Who's I, I tape the show and then I send it back to the station. Well, I don't see no cameras. Well, there aren't any cameras here because we're on radio. This is Stefan Flambeau with Elroy Fatback of the DOT, supposedly the head of the DOT. 
I think you can see why the problems exist in this city, in the streets, in the potholes, and sewers caving in, because men like this are running. Actually, I was appointed by the governor because I'm signing off. Long before Sasha Baron Cohen made his film Cultural Learnings of America to make benefit glorious nation of Kazakhstan, he had a show on HBO called The Ali G Show, on which Borat and several other characters made their debut. In the following audio clip, Borat pretends to be looking for a home in a gated community in the United States. His main concern, as expressed to the real estate broker, is whether the bathroom will have sufficient noise insulation due to some of the noises made by his wife. My wife, she do uh, very much a noise when she do a toilet. You can shut that door there and then this door here and that'd be very quiet. You will tell me if you can hear? Sure. Just barely hear you. I think it would be all right. You can make a noise and I will see if I can hear it. Okay, let me shut the door. Make a noise. Did you hear me? A little. This is what your wife sounds like? She does not make lots of noise. What do you feed her that she makes a little noise? Well, just regular stuff that I eat.
A number one hit on the rhythm and blues charts in 1967. Freddie Scott and Are You Lonely For Me Baby. We'll be right back after a brief message from one of our sponsors. For over 40 years, we here at Starbucks have brought our passion for fine coffee and espresso to people everywhere. But one place was impossible until now. Introducing the Verismo Home Brewing System by Starbucks. Simply insert the pot of your choice, press coffee, espresso, or latte, and give the machine your name. Marsha. And when it's ready, Verismo's voice feature will let you know. Amorpha. Hold up for Amorpha. Amorella. Uh, Marsha? Uh, yeah. Thank you. And if Verismo gets your order wrong, simply get its attention and walk it through the problem. This is tea. I ordered a latte. Okay, so one tea, one latte? Uh, no, I, I just, no tea. I just want the latte. Uh, okay. Hold up. Once Verismo says hold up, you're only nine minutes away from getting your coffee. She said she don't want no tea. She said what? And from the makers of Verismo comes Verquanica, a larger non-functional machine for Verismo to talk to about you. Why she asked for a tea if she want a latte? I don't know, man. That's stupid. And if you order now, you'll also receive Starbucks accessories like non-refrigerated milk pitchers, a bunch of discarded wooden stirrers, and a packet of sugar in the raw smashed into a puddle of cream. Latte for Shasha. Oh, I already got my latte. Now she don't want a latte? Oh my God. This bitch crazy. She is working my last nerve. The Verismo from Starbucks. My guest today is Harvey Clare, the Andrew Mellon Professor of Politics and History at Emory University. Harvey has co-authored nine books on American communism and Russian espionage. Hello and welcome to WMLB. Hi, thanks for having me on. Harvey, um, when the Soviet Union collapsed several years back, you got access to some very interesting papers, very interesting documents. Tell us about it. Okay, well, I had, uh, for, for most of my academic career, I'd been studying American communism, and I, I'd written a number of books on the topic. And by the late 1980s, early 1990s, I was, I was pretty, pretty sick of it, um, reading communist uh, newspapers and magazines, and it's not a lot of fun. It's pretty turgid language, and, and uh, it was just about played out, I thought. Um, and I, so I decided to do a, a biography of a very interesting guy who had spent some time in Russia and thought I would go over to, to Russia and uh, investigate his life there. And uh, I arranged to uh, go in, in uh, the summer or spring of of uh, 1992. Well, in the, in the fall of, of 1991, um, there was the unsuccessful coup against Mikhail Gorbachev, and the coup collapsed, and, and Boris Yeltsin took power, and, and one of the things Yeltsin did over the next several months was to outlaw the Communist Party, which had been behind the coup, and uh, to confiscate and seize all Communist Party property. And among the, the Communist Party property he seized were, were a number of, of archives where the, the party had uh, stored its documents and materials, most of which had been withheld from scholars and researchers. 
when I went to Moscow in uh, the late spring of, of 1992, um, I was the first American and, and one of the first Westerners uh, to get access to one of these archives that had been opened uh, in central Moscow. And it was uh, an archive that controlled the uh, papers of the Communist International, which was the organization that for many years had directed communist parties around the world. And uh, I started going through the materials um, in this archive. It's a huge archive, and I could only sample uh, the stuff they had um, on the American Communist Party. And uh, as I plowed through this material, the, the translator I was working with um, and I came across a number of documents that were labeled top secret. And uh, obviously, if you're working in an archive and you come across something labeled top secret, it must be important. Um, and it, they were messages from a, a man named Fitin, whom I didn't, I didn't know who he was, uh, directed to uh, Georgi Dimitrov, who was the head of the Communist International, and they asked for information about a number of Americans. And uh, there are a couple fascinating things about this. One, that they were labeled top secret. Two, that the, the, I, I recognized a number of the names of the Americans, and that these were people that had been accused by Elizabeth Bentley, um, a woman who had served as a uh, communist spy and then defected and went to the FBI. Uh, she, these were people that she had named as, as her sources in the American government. So I knew that I had something very significant because these memos were written in 1942, long before Bentley defected. So it's not as if uh, Fetin was asking... You know, he was saying to Dimitrov, uh, Elizabeth Bentley is testifying before Congress that these people are spies. What do we know about them? This is long before. This is when Bentley was still working for the Soviets. And uh, when I came back to the United States, one of the things I learned was that Fitin was the head of um, the NKVD's uh, Foreign Intelligence Division. He was the Soviet Union's chief spymaster. So this was pretty powerful evidence that these people that he had named... Uh, were in fact spies, that, that this was part of the process of recruiting and vetting them that was taking place, and I had found the documents that proved it. And the, uh, they let you walk out of the country with documents uh, that were, were top secret and that I understand uh, shortly after this closed down. You, you had the good fortune to come in that window when, uh, when Yeltsin took power and outlawed the Communist Party. Absolutely. Uh, it, was, it was very fortunate. Yeltsin, um, clearly, one of the reasons he opened the archives was that he expected that people would find all kinds of dirt on the Communist Party. I mean, he, <laughs> he was a high official in the party. He knew more than most people just how, uh, just how uh, its activities were conducted. So uh, one of the reasons that he'd opened the archives was to help discredit the Communist Party. And uh, he, he, his design was not to help Harvey Clare. No, particular. no, I don't think so. Uh, well, you, when you got back to the United States, you had, you had some dynamite. I mean, you I, had, oh, I had real dynamite. And, I, you know, it, it made me nervous when I left, quite frankly, because um, there, were no, there were no Xerox machines at the time I worked in this archive. And um, when you asked them to copy material, um, what they would do is they would take it all away. And, and when I left the... the my work at the archive, they gave me these two thick reels of microfilm. So, uh, you know, I left the country with two reels of microfilm filled with documents labeled top secret, um, which can be a little nerve-wracking. It was, it was only 1992. The, the days of the Soviet Union were not that far in the, uh -huh. the past. 
but yeah, I, I knew I had some real dynamite, and um, it, it was material that was going to cause a lot of people um, to be upset and a lot of people to change their perspective on the whole McCarthy era. You uh, you indicated in a in our conversation beforehand that in a way McCarthy uh, McCarthy discredited the move to to find some of these spies that. Yeah, I mean, McCarthy, I think, was a real disaster for the anti-communist cause. McCarthy's anti-communism, I don't think, was particularly principled. He, At the time he, he made his famous speech in 1950 and, and leaped into prominence, uh, he was a very obscure and, and widely regarded as a pretty ineffective senator. Um, and he was desperate for a, an issue to help him in his re-election campaign that was coming up in two years. The one, you know, the one issue that McCarthy had been identified with in, in the Senate prior to this, or the, one of the major issues, was he had defended some Nazi war criminals, uh, SS men who had shot American POWs. Um, McCarthy claimed they hadn't gotten a fair trial by the by the military. Well, I don't know if they got a fair trial or not, but you know that's not a winning issue in an American political campaign to to defend the the civil rights of SS officers that that uh, executed American POWs. Uh, he, he needed an issue, and he got a bunch of people together, and, and some of them said, well, you should play the communist issue. And McCarthy said, oh, okay. Uh, he, he knew very little about it, and the, the charges he made, um, by and large, were just wildly inaccurate. You know, there were lots of Americans that, that spied for the Soviet Union. We, we now know that. Uh, the FBI knew it at the time. And, and McCarthy claimed that, and, and he was right in the in the largest sense, but all the particulars, um, he was wrong. And, and in this kind of thing, the particulars are very important. I mean, you know, if you accuse somebody of being a spy, you should have evidence. And McCarthy didn't have evidence. A couple of the people he accused were spies, but the vast majority were not. And he couldn't tell the difference between a spy, uh, an American communist, a fellow traveler, and a liberal, and their differences. Well, McCarthy was swinging wild, and uh, uh, as you said, he was right in that there were a fair number of, of Americans working for the communists, yet he was missing the particular targets. Mm-hmm. Did these people do any real damage? Oh, I think they did an enormous amount of damage. Um, the, the most obvious um, example is, is atomic espionage. We now know from uh, the Venona decryptions, and we can certainly talk about that in, in a few minutes, but um, we know that the Soviet Union had a number of spies within the Manhattan Project, which was the American effort to build an atomic bomb during World War II. These, and th- this is not the Rosenbergs you're referring to. Right. Well, the Rose, of course, the Rosenbergs were convicted and executed for atomic espionage. One of the great ironies is that, that you know, they were atomic spies. Uh, uh, Ethel Rosenberg's brother, David Greenglass, worked at Los Alamos. He was a machinist, and he turned over material that, that uh, Julius Rosenberg passed on to the Russians. But in terms of, uh, of atomic spying, the Rosenbergs were pretty small fry. Um, they were actually, Julius Rosenberg actually was far more uh, damaging, did far more damage in, in terms of other um, military material. He turned over uh, very vital information about uh, proximity fuses and radar and sonar uh, to his Soviet contacts. He, 
Julius ran a spy ring composed largely of, of engineers. He himself was an engineer, um, all members of the Communist Party. Um, there's one wonderful story that, that was told in, in recent years by the KGB officer that actually uh, ran Julius Rosenberg, that um, on Christmas, uh, I think it was 1944, uh, he met Julius at a Horn and Hardart cafeteria in Manhattan, and Julius gave him a, a, a big bag and said, this is my Christmas present to you. And um, he got back to the embassy, and it was a completely assembled proximity fuse, which was one of the, the key scientific uh, technical um, inventions of World War II. It, it was a, a fuse that, that would explode when it got near an object, so it, you know, it didn't have to actually... Uh, say uh, hit hit an airplane in order to explode. It could explode right near it and, and obviously do a lot of damage. And Julius had smuggled the parts out from uh, from the factory where he was working, and uh, then assembled them and given them to the Soviet Union. And uh, his KGB controller uh, in in the book he wrote uh, in published in in the late 1990s said that a, a modified form of this was used to down Gary Powers U2. Um, in, in the in 1960, um, so you know Julius did a lot of damage. Most of it was not atomic. Uh, there were other spies, scientists, Klaus Fuchs, uh, a German-born British scientist, and um, a guy named Ted Hall, uh, a young American scientist who turned over absolutely vital atomic bomb material uh, to the Russians. Um, and this, and this information was confirmed by, you, you had mentioned, the Venona Papers. Right. This was, uh, the, the, the Venona Project was um, began, begun during World War II when uh, American uh, signals intelligence began to get rumors that Hitler might be um, trying to negotiate an a, um, uh, agreement with Stalin to, to end the war between the two of them and, you know, if Stalin was trying to conclude a separate peace, this was something the Americans wanted to know. And so they began to um, try to break into Soviet codes. And uh, during World War II, because of censorship regulations, um, the, the United States government was collecting all incoming and outgoing international cable traffic, you know, like Western Union. And uh, the Soviets were sending hundreds of thousands of Western Union messages. This is how the Soviet embassy in Washington or the Soviet consulate in New York communicated with Moscow. They would send things Western Union. And and this material was both encrypted and enciphered, and the Soviets were convinced that their codes could not be broken. And uh, the United States began trying to break into this stuff during World War II, and, and by 1947, really, were beginning to succeed. It was a incredibly laborious project and it was very very difficult and when they be, when they broke into these messages they they discovered um, not so much diplomatic messages uh, which was the original motivation but they discovered uh, espionage messages and uh, that's how we learned first that the Soviets were trying to infiltrate the Manhattan Project um, and a lot of these messages actually had the names of Soviet spies in them um, and this is how the government first got on to Klaus Fuchs. This is how they first got on to a woman named Judith Coplin, who was uh, prosecuted for espionage in the 1940s, late 40s. 
So uh, Venona was this um, incredible American counterintelligence effort that um, continued really through the 1970s. We were as late as in the 1970s. We were still trying to decrypt these World War II era messages, and um, as a result of Venona, we eventually learned that uh, somewhere around 300 to 350 Americans had been spying for the Soviet Union during World War II. And yet we we couldn't use that information because we didn't want the Soviets to know that we'd... Uh, that we'd, we'd broken their code. Broken their it, code. It, it, it's a real irony. Um, you know, the, the, for years there were all these claims by the defenders of the Rosenbergs that they had been framed. Well, the... the the government had the Venona messages, which indicated that Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were Soviet agents. Um, uh, they couldn't be used in court, uh, both because we didn't want to let the Russians know, and there was another reason as well. It would have been very difficult to get them legally admitted as evidence. Um, you know, it, these messages originally were just a string of, of letters, because they were in code. And uh, can you imagine trying to explain to a jury and convince them that 34276 stands for Julius Rosenberg. Um, uh, it wouldn't have worked. Let's get on to um, uh, two things. One is, uh, I guess two questions arise. One is, uh, why is this so important now? I mean, the Communist Party is a legal party in, in most of Western Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is an old battle. Uh, what's its significance today? Well, I think the, the, the couple things. One is it's it's part of our history, and we, we need to understand it. Um, I, I think it's important to understand that hostility to communism um, within the American government and, and um, the loyalty security program that the government instituted was not some kind of witch hunt. Um, Joe McCarthy may have been engaged in a witch hunt, but there was a genuine, legitimate security problem that the United States faced. We, we knew that there were 300 to 350 uh, American communists who had served as Soviet spies during World War II. Counterintelligence, American counterintelligence, was only able to identify about 150 of them. That is, you know, their real names. For example, they might decrypt a message that that says uh, that said that somebody codenamed Muse, who was working in the OSS, um, had provided information. But they might not be able to figure out who this individual codenamed Muse was. Um, There was one message, for example, that indicated somebody um, who probably was a, a, a captain in the United States Navy was providing information. They were never able to figure out who that captain was. Well, uh... You know, the government had a real problem. Was had that captain in World War II been promoted to an admiral by the late 1940s? Had Muse, that source in the OSS, transferred into the CIA? Um, so the government had a real security problem, and and the idea that that uh, there was some kind of uh, irrational persecution of communists in government uh, after World War II. Um, is a myth, and it's important to understand that. I think it's very important to understand that now because the the uh, the cries of witch hunt now with regard to uh, Islamic fundamentalists. Islamic fundamentalists. Uh, absolutely uh, correct. I think it's the same uh, kind of parallel. 
And, and there's another reason that's important to understand it, and, and this goes to sort of uh, American amnesia, I think, about history in general. We're, we're aware of the, the crimes of Nazism, and, and we're constantly reminded, and we need to be reminded of those things. It's also important to be aware of the crimes of communism and to remember them. Um, yes, the American Communist Party always was a legal party. I mean, the party was never banned. But the American Communist Party was composed of people that apologized for and supported and actually applauded uh, the crimes of Joseph Stalin. And uh, those crimes included the murder of large numbers of Americans. Um, you know, one, again, one of the things that I think very few people in the United States are aware of is that among the bodies that have been dug up from mass graves discovered in the Soviet Union are hundreds of Americans, American citizens, that, that Stalin murdered. And that's a, you know, that's a part of American history and uh, that has sort of gone down the memory hole. Well, I think, too, uh, when you mention amnesia, I think uh, people have quickly forgotten Pol Pot and the fact that, that the, the Khmer Rouge was a, was a communist that's, insurgency. And that's a, right. Uh, uh, killed over a million uh, of his own countrymen. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the, if, you, if you go simply by body count, um, Joseph Stalin and uh, Mao Zedong killed communist leaders, killed far, far more people than Hitler. It's, you know, it, it, it's something that, that people need to remember. There's this image somehow that communism was this idealic, idealistic system that, that never quite, you know, worked out. Well, it's a little bit more than that. It was one of the most brutal tyrannies uh, that human beings have ever seen. Harvey, um, it's been very, very interesting talking to you, and uh, I, 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 knew you, I knew a little bit about your work, but I didn't know... Uh, quite how uh, fascinating it was to walk out with, with uh, those two rolls of microfilm. Well, and I hope, uh, I hope you'll talk with us again. I'd be delighted to. And, and uh, I mean, it's obviously a topic that I'm quite passionate about. And uh, even if it's a topic that a lot of my academic colleagues don't like to hear about, I think it's one that both they and the American public need to remember. I couldn't agree more. Thanks again. Okay. Take care, Joe. Bye-bye.
Finishing up with the Boston Pops, led by Arthur Fiedler with Stars and Stripes, written by John Philip Sousa. Before that, we heard an interview I did several years back with Harvey Clare, the Andrew Mellon Professor of Politics and History at Emory University in Atlanta. Folks, thanks for keeping me company. This is Joe Weber saying so long here from the Voice of the Arts, wishing you love, laughter, and good health. <laughs>